Welcome to Southside Presbyterian Church. The following sermon was taken from our Sunday gathering. If you'd like to find out more, or if we can help you on your journey in faith, head to our website, www.southsidepc.org, or visit us any Sunday morning at 9am. I'm going to read the Bible for us now. The reading this morning comes from John chapter 8, reading from verse 48 to 58, and should be on the screen. Um, So I'll read that now. Jesus claims about himself. The Jews answered him, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? I am not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honour my father and you dishonour me. I am not seeking glory for myself, but there is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Very truly I tell you, whoever obeys my word will never see death. At this they exclaimed, Now we know that you were demon-possessed. Abraham died, and so do the prophets. Yet you say that whoever obeys your word will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham? He died, and so did the prophets. Who do you think you are? Jesus replied, If I glorify myself, my glory means nothing. My Father, whom you claim as your God, is the one who glorifies me. Though you do not know him, I know him. If I said I did not, I would be a liar like you, but I do know him and obey his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. You are not yet 50 years old, they said to him, and you have seen Abraham? Very truly I tell you, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I am. At this they picked up stones to stone him, but Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple grounds. Thanks, Ben. Awesome. We're going to look at this uh, final episode, I suppose, of our series that we've been in. We finally made it. Thanks for joining us along the way. Let's pray, though, and then we'll hook into this last one. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for the privilege that we have to gather together today. God, it's good to be together, and it's good to spend this time to look at your word and who you are and what you call us to. Father, we pray that this morning that you would help us to have the energy to focus, to have the ability to be present, and we pray that everything that has been bothering us or concerning us, that uh, you would help us to put that aside so that we'd be here. We pray you'd transform us. We pray that you would change us, and we pray that you would make us more like Jesus, in Jesus' name. Amen. Who doesn't love a how-to guide? Right? You know the ones I'm talking about? I love them. I love the idea that you can conquer the world in less than 20 steps. Right? That's the ones that I love. And this week I came across one that was particularly great that I'd love to tell you about. It was how to become a billionaire in 15 steps. Now that was good to me. 15 steps, very clear on, uh, on achieving that goal. And uh, a couple of highlights for you this morning. Coming in at number one, I think, was save your money. So if you, if you didn't know that, that's our first step to billionaire status. Along the way, uh, there was buy real estate. 
So that too is up there if you're looking to become a billionaire or invest in businesses, uh, that was there too. Uh, one of them early on, which was particularly good, was pay off your credit card debt. Uh, that too was a good, I mean, that's good advice, right? Especially when the ad next to it is that you can borrow $500,000 to $500,000 through Lumi. I mean, that's just an interesting thing they got going on there. But my favorite of the lot in the 15 steps to becoming a billionaire was make smart financial decisions. That was a point, make smart financial decisions. So there you go, you too can look this up. There's pictures as well on WikiHow. Just Google it and you'll find it. Now, there are a few problems with this, right? Uh, a few problems. Uh, number one, I think, is it's not necessarily a great goal to have to become a billionaire, but, but that's, there's that. Uh, number two, I think, is you can pretty much guarantee this wasn't written by a billionaire. That much is clear as you read this. But number three, the big problem with these guides, and this happens whenever you click on the clickbait, because it's, it's always clickbait, right? We know that. The problem is you end the goal, you end the how-to guide, not actually knowing how to achieve the thing you want to achieve. You know, like I, I finished that and I, I definitely wasn't wiser because of the time that I spent reading this how-to guide and I wasn't closer to becoming a billionaire. The problem with lots of these guides is you end frustrated because you don't actually know how to get the thing you want to get in the first place. And that is a frustrating experience. It, it is frustrating when you want something but you're not really sure how to get there. Now, the, the reason we raised this this morning is because we are finishing a series called Pursuing Greatness. We put it up front that this is the goal we're going for. We're going for greatness. And we've seen along this journey that greatness is defined as Jesus, right? We've seen that every single aspect of the fruit of the Spirit. We've looked at how Jesus modeled that and displayed that and showed us what that looked like from love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, We've seen it all in Jesus, but now the question is, as we get to the end of this series called Pursuing Greatness, how do we get there? How is it that we actually get there, especially as we finish this series and long into the rest of our life, how do we achieve greatness? Well, the answer is in the final fruit of the Spirit, the final aspect, because today we are looking at the very confronting aspect of self-control. Now, self-control is defined like this. It's the control of oneself. It's the governing of one's desires. And so what that means is self-control is the answer to how we get greatness because it's the glue that keeps everything else together. So what does it look like to go after self-control? What does it mean for us to pursue this and to find this? Well, let's, let's dig into this. Let's look into this today and let's again begin with Jesus. That's where we're beginning. And what we're going to do as we see Jesus today is we're going to see two aspects of self-control that are helpful for us as we go on this journey. So the first aspect we see is in John chapter 8, where Jesus has a self-control despite the fact that he's being ridiculed, despite his circumstances. So we pick it up in John chapter 8, where it begins in verse 48, as Jesus is under attack. This is what it says. The Jews answered him, verse 48, Aren't we right in saying that you are a Samaritan and demon-possessed? Okay, just soak that up. People saying he's a Samaritan and demon-possessed. There's a bit going on there. But Jesus says in verse 49, I'm not demon-possessed. I'm not possessed by a demon, said Jesus, but I honor my Father and you dishonor me. Okay, so what does self-control look like? Well, it's worth pointing out here what's going on for Jesus. Because here he is under pressure. The circumstances are not great. And you, you get a sense of that right off the back with what the, what the Jews are saying to Jesus. 
Now, the context is important. We are in John chapter 8, and what we've seen so far in the book of John up to this point is that Jesus has done many signs and wonders. These signs and wonders, though, are all about who Jesus is. That's what they're pointing us to. They're pointing us to the deep reality of who Jesus is. So you think about the water to wine. We saw that in the series. Some of the things we didn't see in this series, but you know, the feeding the 5,000, or you might have heard of Jesus walking on water. These signs are pointing to who Jesus is. But you see, the Jewish people, they don't, they don't like that. They don't like who Jesus is or who he says he is. And so here they confront him and they attack him and they say, aren't you a Samaritan or possessed by a demon? Now you get a sense there, don't you, that that's a, that's a pretty confronting situation. I mean, no one likes being ridiculed, but this is pretty intense from the Jewish people. I mean, a, a Samaritan, that's a, that's a big deal because of the geopolitical stuff going on back in the day. But this today would be like, if you went to Ukraine and you called a Ukrainian a Russian. You know, that's kind of what it, it's like calling someone a Samaritan back in the Jewish world. They're saying that Jesus is the worst of the worst, the enemy. And then, of course, they say he's possessed by a demon. You don't need me to tell you how bad that is. That's pretty grim as well. So here it is. The Jews are attacking Jesus. They're going after Jesus. They're ridiculing him in the whole chapter. They're putting him on trial. And so the question is, how is Jesus going to respond? Is he going to blow up? Is he going to lash out? Is he going to attack? No, Jesus stays self-controlled. You can see that. He just responds very calmly. I'm not possessed by a demon. He doesn't even engage in the Samaritan stuff. He says, I'm not possessed by a demon. I honor my father and uh, my father and you dishonor me. Jesus is very calm in this situation, despite the fact that being put under pressure. And he shows us something very important about self-control. He shows us that it doesn't matter what's going on. Self-control is about the control of one's desires, the governing of oneself. And so Jesus shows us this in this moment. He shows self-control. And he says, I'm not a demon. But then he goes on to say, not just am I not a demon, he says that he's God. So we see this in this exchange. You see in verse 51, he says, whoever obeys my word will never see death. In verse 56, he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. And then in verse 58, the big moment of Jesus here in this passage, he says, Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is self-controlled despite under pressure. And he says, I'm not a demon, but actually he shows that Jesus claimed to be God. Now this is important that we note this. Because sometimes people will say that Jesus never said that he was God. You might have heard that before. People like to say that Jesus was just a good teacher or he was a prophet. But the problem is good teachers don't claim divinity. You know, none of us had a good teacher in school who claimed to be God. Good teachers who claim to be God, they are either insane or a fraud or in Jesus' case, they are actually God. Prophets, they don't say that they're God. They point to God. But here in this passage, Jesus very clearly says, I am God. And he says that through that last line there, before Abraham was, I am. There's just no way you can read the story of the Bible from beginning to end and hear any other thing in that moment. He is claiming divinity. So Jesus, self-controlled, says, I'm not a demon, but I'm God. Now, how do the Jews respond? Well, they respond the opposite of self-controlled. They're reactionary. They're uncontrollable. And not only do they attack Jesus, now they try and kill Jesus. In verse 59, they pick up stones to stone him. But Jesus is so self-controlled, he just hides himself and slips away from the temple. 
So here we see in this passage one aspect of self-control. We see the aspect of self-control, that it doesn't matter what's going on, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are or what people are saying, self-control is the control of oneself, the governing of one's desires. And Jesus perfectly shows that. You, you get a sense of that, don't you, in this passage? He perfectly shows self-control. And once again, Jesus does what we've seen this whole series. Jesus shows us that he is greatness. Right? Every time, every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit, we've seen Jesus display this perfectly, and self-control is no different. He shows it again that he is someone who perfectly display, displayed supreme self-control. So the first aspect of self-control that we see is what Jesus shows us in John chapter 8. But there's a second aspect of self-control that's important to note as we think about it today and as we think about where we are in this series and the second aspect of self-control is the reality that self-control is not just self-control, it's the glue that keeps greatness together. It's the glue that ties everything else together. And this too is something that we see in Jesus. Not just in John chapter 8 though, but as we keep going in the story. You see, we see in this moment that Jesus hides himself. He slips away from the temple. But we of course know that Jesus doesn't always hide himself from death. In fact, the moment will come when Jesus will die. But you see, when we think about the journey towards the cross and then the crucifixion itself, the act of Jesus' death is not just the act of God's love for us. You know, we, we have said this a lot at Southside that we know God loves us because of the cross. And that is, that is true. But what's interesting is as we explore the journey towards the cross, we begin to see that nothing could have happened without self-control. So you think about some moments on the journey towards the cross. I mean, we just sung about a moment before when Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, you think about that moment. Jesus was facing death. He knew what was coming and he was stressed. He was anxious. You know, we're told he was so stressed that he was like sweating blood. Now, when you're stressed or anxious, what happens in your life? You know, for me, often the first thing that disappears is self-control. But Jesus, under this stress and this anxiety, what does he do in the Garden of Gethsemane? He prays. He goes to the Father in complete self-control, and he prays to the Father, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. Jesus went through the Garden of Gethsemane because of self-control. Or you think of some other moments that we've explored in this series. You know, we looked at peace, we looked at how Jesus had a great peace from God, and for that, we looked at John chapter 18. Now, in that moment, we looked at the moment when the guards came and arrested Jesus. You remember? And we, we saw how Jesus had peace in that moment. He knew that God was in control, and so he had a deep peace. But do you remember what happened in that moment when the guards came and arrested Jesus? What did Peter do? He cut the guard's ear off, right? And you think about that in the context of self-control. That's not self-control. That's uncontrolled. That's reactionary. But what was Jesus doing in that moment? He was self-controlled. You know, he, he gave himself over to the guards. He didn't join in with Peter and attack the guards. Without self-control, peace couldn't have happened. Or you think about faithfulness. That too is something we looked in this series, and it's also in John chapter 18. Faithfulness, we looked at the moment when Jesus is before Pilate. And I love that exchange that Jesus has before Pilate because Pilate says, I can let you go. But Jesus says, you would have nothing if it were not given to you from above. And we reflected that week on how Jesus in that moment was showing faithfulness 
But what else is he showing? Self-control. Right? Jesus could have never gone through that exchange with Pilate without a self-control. He was controlled enough not to take the offer to be let go, but rather he went towards the cross. Or finally, you think about kindness and goodness. That was the week we looked at the washing of the disciples' feet, when Jesus lowered himself to wash their feet. And we thought about how that week wasn't just about Jesus being kind and good in, in, in washing their feet, but ultimately about the cross, when Jesus would lay his life down for his followers to wash them clean. But again, you consider that moment. Does the cross happen without self-control? I mean, Jesus at any point could have taken himself down from the cross. It was guards that he made that was killing him. You know, he hung on wood that he created. He could have at any point taken himself down from the cross, but he didn't. Why? Because he was self-controlled. You see, you can pick any aspect of the journey towards the cross, any moment of Jesus' life, and yes, you'll see love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness. You'll see all those things, but you'll also see self-control. And it shows us something really powerful and beautiful about self-control. It's not just a thing in and of itself. It's the glue that ties the rest of the fruit of the Spirit together. So when we think about what does it look like to pursue self-control, we start by seeing it in Jesus. We start by seeing Jesus display a supreme self-control, not just in self-control in itself, but in every other aspect of what he did. So then that's what self-control looks like. The question is, okay, so what does it look like for us? How do we go after this? How do we get this? And particularly as we think about pursuing greatness, what does it mean for us? Well, this is what we're going to do. We're going to go to 1 Corinthians chapter 9 to see this. So if you've got your Bibles there, have a look at 1 Corinthians 9. And we're going to reflect on this uh, as we go to 1 Corinthians 9 because we see Paul display self-control and show us what self-control looks like through giving us an image. So here's what it is. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 24, it's on the screen as well. As we think about self-control, what I love about this verse and this passage is Paul doesn't just say, be more self-controlled. He gives us an image of running a race. So let's have a, reflect, uh, let's have a think about this. Verse 24, he says this, do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training or literally struggles with or exercises self-control. They do it to get a crown that will not last, but we do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like someone running aimlessly. I do not fight like a boxer beating the air. No, I strike a blow to my body and make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I myself will not be disqualified for the prize. Okay, so what does self-control look like for us? Well, it's important to note there, first and foremost, that when we're thinking about doing anything in the Christian faith, it begins by receiving the gift that we've been given. Okay, you see Paul there, he speaks about the crown that will last forever. And, and the crown that will last forever is the gift that God has given because of his greatness, because of what Jesus did at the cross. Okay, so it begins by receiving grace. But then we move to pursuing greatness, to pursuing self-control, and to show us what that looks like, Paul here gives us an image. And the image is of running. So this is what we're going to do. We're going to go deep into this illustration. Okay, so in the last little while, uh, I've started running again. Uh, this started about six months ago, and since I've started running about six months ago, so before that, 
I hadn't run for 18 months. I was the most unfit in my life, and I will use becoming a parent as my excuse. That was my excuse for that. But in the last six months, I started running again, and uh, I've learned three things about running that I think Paul is speaking about here. Okay, so the first thing that I learned when it comes to running is the goal gets you going, right? 18 months of my life, I didn't run. I didn't want to exercise. But uh, I started six months ago, and what was it that that helped me start? Well, I uh, started playing soccer. And I hadn't played soccer for a very long time. And the first game that I played, uh, I reckon I was on the field for 15 out of 90 minutes, and I ran for 10 of those and walked for five. I was sore for weeks after that, and I felt so old. I mean, I know if you're young right now, you probably think I am old. Well, I felt older than that. It was bad. And so I had a goal to last and play soccer for longer than 15 minutes. And so what, what did that force me to do? It forced me to exercise. I began to run again. I hadn't done it for 18 months. For 18 months, no goal, no running. But then I had a goal to to play soccer, and that got me running. The first lesson that I learned when it comes to exercise is the goal gets you going. Without a goal, you just don't start. The second thing I learned when when it came to exercise, the second thing was that consistency creates change. If you've ever exercised, you know this. But when I started, it wasn't a good experience for anyone involved. Not me, not the people around me. Uh, I would run on my lunch breaks at the office, and uh, I would set the timer for 20 minutes, and I would run for about two kilometers. That was all I had in me. And I was tired and sweaty, and I complained about it for the rest of the day. But the first week I started, and I I did two runs for that first week. And then the next week I didn't do any, but then the week after that I, I, I did two runs again, and then, and then it sort of started from that. But every time I ran, it was, it was hard, it was, it was difficult, it was tiring, and I didn't really enjoy it. But at some point, and I don't really know when, but at some point it changed from two to three, just in the week. I, I, I did three runs, and then it started from three to four, and at some point, I don't know exactly when that happened, but it did. And what happened in that journey is every time I ran, it felt it felt bad. I didn't enjoy any of it. But over time, I began to see that all of a sudden I could run 3Ks and then 4Ks and then 5Ks and then 6 and then 8 and then do it quicker. I didn't notice it in the moment. Every time I did it, it felt hard. But as I look back on the days and the weeks and the months that added up, I began to see that it was every step that created change. In exercise, consistency creates change. So the first lesson I learned was the goal gets you going. The second is consistency creates change. The third was this. The third was that the struggle is a sign of strength. In exercise, the struggle is a sign of strength. So if you've ever exercised before, you know this. But uh, for me, for 18 months, I didn't struggle, right? I didn't struggle with exercise for 18 months because I didn't do anything. But then I, I started running, and every time it was hard, and I didn't enjoy it. In fact, there was a particular moment a couple of months ago where I, oh, it was about a month ago, where I decided to push myself, and I bit off way more than I could chew. Uh, I, instead of running like my limit, I ran nearly double my limit up hills. It was just the stupidest decision. But I decided to do that thinking, I can do this. I got about halfway, and I couldn't do it. The sun was too hot, and I gave up, and I started walking. And I hate walking when I'm running. It's just like, for me, 
It's a sign of failure. And so I didn't enjoy that. I had to stop. I had to get some shade. And the problem was I was still like three Ks from home. So at some point I had to figure out, okay, I got a bit to cover here. How am I going to get there? So I walked and then I ran a little bit more and then I walked a bit and then I ran and then I walked and then I got home and I crashed. And I was pretty discouraged by that. I didn't enjoy any of that at all. But a week later, I did the same run. I know, dog returning to its vomit, that's the vibe, right? And there could have been a little bit of a vomit involved. But the second time I did that same run, I ran it. I, it wasn't quick by any stretch of the imagination, but I didn't walk that second run. And I learned something in that moment. I learned that when it comes to exercise, struggle is a sign of strength. Struggle in exercise is not a sign of weakness. In fact, if you're exercising and there's no struggle, that's when you should be worried. But when it comes to exercising, struggle is a sign of strength. Now, what's this got to do with anything? Well, I think in 1 Corinthians 9, this is kind of the language that Paul uses for his race. You know, he says the Christian faith is like this because he's going after the goal. That's the crown that lasts forever. He says he's not running aimlessly. He, he's intentional. He's consistent. He says that he fights, he struggles, he, 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 be, he strikes his body and makes it a slave so that he doesn't just do whatever he wants to do. You get this sense that this is what drives Paul. But what about for us? What does it look like for us? And particularly as we're thinking about pursuing greatness and self-control, how does this all tie together? Well, let's, let's finish where we started. Let's go to Galatians 5 and see how these three things help us see why self-control is important and how we actually get greatness. So let's do that. Let's go to Galatians 5 because I think Paul, when he writes to the church in Galatia, where the fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5 is where the fruit of the Spirit's written. We see this type of language attached to how we go after the fruit of the Spirit. So it's in Galatians chapter 5, and we're going to pick it up from verse 16. And notice what we're going to see is it requires a self-control to set the goal, a self-control to be consistent, and a self-control to face the struggle. So let's have a look in verse 16. He says this, So I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the flesh. They're in conflict with each other, so that you are not to do whatever you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. The acts of the flesh are obvious, sexual immorality, impurity and debauchery, idolatry and witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions and envy, drunkenness, orgies and the like. I warn you, as I did before, that those who live like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, forbearance, or patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. So what does it look like for us if we take the imagery of running the race and if we, you know, in light of what we've seen in Jesus, what does it mean for us to, to go after this? Well, we're going to wrap it up, this series, in this moment here as we think about these three things. Number one, I think you can see from this passage, it requires a self-control to set the goal. It requires a self-control to set the goal. If the goal gets you going, 
then we need a self-control to make sure that it's the right goal that gets us going. In this series, you know, it's been confronting to me to think about pursuing greatness and each week to think about this idea that these are the things that God wants for me. You know, that God wants me to be someone who is more loving and joyful and, and all of the other things. It's confronting to see that. But as we think about how we do this and, and how we continue to do this as we leave this room, what we've got to recognize is it requires a self-control to keep putting this on the front of our minds so that this is the goal that we're living for each day. It's important we do this because we live in a world where everyone wants you to set goals. You know, I feel like it starts from about year 10, where people start asking you in grade 10, what are you going to do when you finish school? And all of a sudden, right there in the front of your mind, you either say, I don't know, or you have a goal. Then you finish school and you go to university or you get an apprenticeship or, or you don't know what you're quite doing, but people are constantly thinking, what's next for you? And you think, okay, my goal when I finish this is a job or an apprenticeship or, or it's relational. Then we get to the end of that. We get jobs and we work or, or, or we, we enter into the family space. And even in that space, I mean, there's still this subtle sense of like, what's your five-year plan or your 10-year plan? Like, where do you want to be in a certain amount of years? Or if we're so bold, sometimes even it's put to us, where do you want to be at the end of your life? You know, there's, a, there's an image that sometimes is used here of, of imagining your funeral and seeing yourself at your funeral. What do you want people to say about you at your own funeral? All of this is the stuff that our world laps up. And it's all got to do with goals. What goals are you living for? Now, I don't think it's unhelpful to have goals. Goals are important. But throughout this series, what I think we've been put in front of us is the question, do we see God's goal for us? And is that at the front of our minds? Right? Like, I mean, do you wake up every morning and think, today... I want to show gentleness. That's my goal for today. Today, I want to show patience. Today, I want to be joyful. Today, wherever I go, I want to make peace. You see how it's, com it's confronting to think like this, right? And as we think about it, if the goal gets us going, then we need a self-control to make sure that every day we're waking up with this at the front of our minds. Many of us are living for something. We have other goals that are getting us going. But what would it look like for you to have the goal of character, the goal of Jesus, the goal of being like Jesus? You know, as, you, as, as we think about this idea and as we think about particularly that idea, the, the, the picture of going to your own funeral and seeing what people say about you, that does mess with me a little bit. And it's confronting to think, what would people say about me at the end of my life? You know, I think it would be a tragedy if when people were remembering me, they said, and they remembered the hobbies that I was into. It would be a tragedy if, you know, they, they just said, you know, Ben worked long hours. If we don't think about this and get the goal in front of us now, that's what's going to happen. And so we need a self-control to get the right goal in front of us. Jesus. And being like Jesus. So number one, we need a self-control to set the goal. 
Number two, we need a self-control to be consistent. Now, did you notice the language that Paul uses here in verse 16? He says, walk by the Spirit. In verse 25, he says, If we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And you know what I love about this? I love that he's kind of tapping into the running illustration almost. And he's speaking of this idea of just one step at a time. Now, I love this picture because to take one step at a time is achievable. It's manageable. It's helpful. But more than that, it's how change happens. And so what we need is a self-control to just take one step at a time. Now, we've got to recognize this, that when it comes to pursuing greatness, we're not just going to wake up overnight and all of a sudden be like Jesus. You know, like if you are someone who struggles with patience, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and just have the patience of Jesus. You know, if gentleness is not the thing that you're great at, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and just be gentle because of a great experience here at church this morning. No, change happens over time and and, and it happens through one consistent step at a time. Now, I love how achievable this is and how helpful this is because what it does is it gives us tangible steps to take as we go into our week now uh throughout this series it's been so great to hear about how people have found this in this series you know people have said the weekly exercises that they've done in the growth group books have been quite confronting Uh, i love that because it's just one step at a time Uh, someone was telling me the other day about patience and they were saying the smallest thing that tests their patience is driving which seems like a consistent theme among lots of people actually, but they were saying that for that week, they were praying about it and really just coming to God for it. And then the next day they were driving and someone cut them off and they were able to show patience. And I love that because the temptation is to think that that doesn't matter. You know, it's like, well, show us the end product. You know, that's, that's the temptation. But the reality is, no, that's where the magic happens through one step at a time. Because the way that we're going to grow to be more like Jesus is through one step at a time. It's through one step when the kids interrupt us that we don't show a lack of patience. If we can show patience in that small step and then build on that, that's how growth is going to happen. Or gentleness, right? It's that moment where people frustrate us, our colleagues frustrate us, someone in our life frustrates us. And yet we can react with gentleness. That one step matters. Because if we can build on it, what's going to happen is change. And the more we can just take one step at a time, the more that we will grow. This is such an encouragement. Because when it comes to pursuing greatness, it begins in the small steps, one step at a time. And what's going to happen is if we can build on this one step at a time, over weeks and months and years, we will see change. You know, in a few years' time, we might say, I'm not who I want to be, but by God's grace, I'm not who I was. The way that we get there is one small step at a time. And so we need our self-control to continue to practice this and to be consistent in this and take one step at a time. So a self-control to set the goal, we need that. We need a self-control to be consistent. And then finally, We need a self-control to face the struggle. Did you see how Paul speaks about the flesh? In verse 24, he says, Those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. You know, crucifixion in the ancient world was the most brutal way that anyone could die. 
And the very idea of using the language of that anywhere else was absurd. And yet Paul is using it here to describe the battle of the Christian when it comes to sin. That we don't just see our sin and be complacent with it. Paul says those who belong to Jesus are crucifying sin. Now, in week one in this series, in our devotions, we talked about uh, what the, in your growth group books, in the devotion, there's, there's a list of, of those, the, the, the flesh, the acts of the flesh. There's a list there of what those things actually mean. So I'd encourage you to go and have a look at those. But today, the thing that we need to think about is that it requires a self-control to face the struggle and to enter the battle and to not be okay with our sin. To actually struggle through this you know, every, every aspect of the fruit of the Spirit that we've looked at, it has just been such a confronting, every time it's been confronting for us. You know, thinking through this and then wrestling with it at growth group and then reflecting on it. You know, it is confronting. But what we need is a self-control to continue to confront that. Because this is going to be a lifelong battle as we pursue Jesus and a lifelong battle as we put to death the flesh. But if we're struggling in our faith and if we're struggling with our sin, it's not a sign of weakness. It's not a sign of weakness if you are battling sin in your life. No, the, the sign of weakness or where we should be worried if there, is if there's no struggle in your life. That's concerning. But if we are finding ourselves engaged in the struggle... And the encouragement this morning is that that's a good thing, not a bad thing. And we need a self-control to just keep turning up to that struggle. Because when we're struggling with our sin, what it shows us is that we're not okay to not be like Jesus. That we're not okay with the patterns of sin in our life. That we're not okay with what our family of origin have handed down with us. That we're not okay with all of that stuff that we live with day in, day out, that just that, that screams out that I'm not there yet. But as we struggle through our sin, it's not weakness, it's a sign of strength. And the beauty of it is that, that Jesus says this is where change happens because those who belong to Christ Jesus are doing this. So self-control is important. You can see that, right? We, and we need a self-control to set the goal. We need a self-control to be consistent. We need a self-control to face the struggle. And it's here that we begin to see how we can actually pursue greatness. How from this series we can go on a- and do this. But as we leave today, as we leave this series and let, it be- and let it go in some ways, the reality is if we want to be greatness, if we want to be great, if we want to be like Jesus... We've got to begin first and foremost by receiving the gift that he's given us, but then have a self-control to day in and day out go after this. Self-control is confronting and it's hard, but it's crucial for all of greatness to happen in our lives. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the gift of grace that we have in Jesus. We thank you for everything that Jesus has done for us. We thank you that when we reflect on his life and on his death, that everything in the journey towards the cross is just great. It's beautiful. It's wonderful. And we praise you, Jesus, for all that you did for us. 
God, grounded in the love that you have for us and the self-control that you showed us. We pray, Father, that you would make us into a people that look like Jesus, that have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness and goodness, faithfulness, gentleness and self-control. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us to do this because we know what the goal is, because we're consistent in every step that we take and because we are struggling through all of this. Give us your grace, Lord. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name.